Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute, Follicular Lymphoma, Haven't We Met Before? Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. In this podcast series, our faculty will discuss follicular lymphoma, its management, first, second, and third-line treatments, including some of the newer therapies, for example, the PI3 kinase inhibitors, copanlicib and duvelisib, and the CAR T-cell inhibitors, including Axacel, Lisacel, and Tisacel, as well as bispecific antibodies such as Mosentuzumab. In this episode, Dr. Christopher Flowers and Dr. Loretta Dostopil take a look at third-line treatment options for follicular lymphoma patients. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash FL3. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Flowers is a professor and ad interim division head in the Division of Cancer Medicine in the Department of Lymphoma Myeloma at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. Dr. Nassipil is an associate professor also in the Department of Lymphoma Myeloma at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Flowers will begin our discussion. Thanks, uh, Dr. Nastapil, for joining me again for this third episode in our series on follicular lymphoma. We spent that time talking about patients in the frontline uh, therapy for the first podcast, and then uh, talked a little bit about early progression of disease uh, and second-line therapy. Let's now turn to the third-line treatment options for uh, patients with follicular lymphoma. Uh, and, and maybe start this off with uh, a kind of typical patient with follicular lymphoma who presents with relatively low tumor burden disease, has initial therapy with single agent uh, rituximab uh, that produces a remission for a few years of uh, therapy, uh, but then ultimately has a relapse with a more high tumor burden disease and is treated with bendamustine and rituximab. Uh, without uh, any sort of maintenance therapy following that. Uh, But now, uh, after that line of therapy, a few years later, it now has returned to the follicular lymphoma. What kinds of conversations do you have with that kind of patient, and how do you think through what to do next? I think you raised some really important uh, points to consider. Each patient at a given line of therapy is going to come into this scenario with some history. And that history is, well, what were their prior lines of treatment? How intensive was that therapy? What was the toxicity of that treatment? And what was the remission duration following those lines of therapy? What do they look like at the time you're making a treatment decision? Meaning what comorbidities do they have? Uh, How is their functional status? What is their objective or goal for the outcome of that next line of treatment? And so it's pretty complex when you think about it. And so I'm glad you framed it with giving me information on what their prior line of treatment was to help me uh, formulate that discussion. I do take into account what their last treatment was, how long that remission was. So this is a patient who had single agent rituximab, been a musty rituximab, and now they're approaching third line. And, and the assumption is that they need active treatment. Fortunately for patients, there's a longer list of options in that third line or later space as a result of several single arm phase two studies, even some randomized trials that may help inform that decision. 
My general preference or how I formulate that discussion is I will walk them through the targeted approaches. If there's no signs of transformed disease or I don't have any concern about underlying aggressive behaving disease, I'm usually gonna stick with a targeted approach because my general assumption is that the toxicity profile may be a little bit more favorable than pursuing an anthracycline-based regimen. And my options there are lenalidomide and rituximab. We've got copanlicid, either a single agent or maybe even with rituximab um, based off of a recent randomized study. You have uh, novel therapies that are available on trial. And then we've got tazimetastat, which is an EZH2 inhibitor. So one thing that might be helpful and is new is understanding whether or not they have an EZH2 mutation. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about that, and I want your opinion. At least based off of the single-arm phase two study, response rates were higher with single-agent tazimetastat among those patients or who had an EZH2 mutation, which is only about maybe 10 to 30% of patients with flic lymphoma. Though the median progression-free survival was only different by about two months, 11 months among those that were wild-type versus almost 14 months for those that had the mutation. So you could look at that and say, well, it doesn't really matter what their mutation status is, but that is one way that I might stratify across um, the various treatment options. Do they have a mutation status? Are they going to tolerate toxicity? We mentioned in our prior podcast that lenalidomide rituximab has similar toxicities to chemoimmunotherapy with cytopenias, fatigue, maybe risk of infection are worth considering. And then the PI3 kinase inhibitors, which we'll spend, I'm sure, more time talking about in the later section, uh, the toxicity associated with those agents. Uh, so I might prefer lenalidomide rituximab first just because it's time-limited therapy, but I will walk through uh, the other options as I outlined. I think those are the, exactly the same kinds of approaches that I would think through uh, with uh, a patient in exactly that uh, same situation. Maybe addressing first the point that you raised about EZH2 inhibitors, I think one of the challenges that we've faced in follicular lymphoma, really, again, lymphomas overall, uh, is the use of uh, mutation status uh, and molecular testing uh, in our diseases uh, to make decisions about therapy. You know, now that we have the EZH2 inhibitor tazimetastab as a therapy where mutation status helps us to define uh, the patient population that may, def uh, may respond better, uh, hopefully mutation status will move more to the forefront uh, in, uh, in our lymphoma therapies. Uh, but up to this point, there have been relatively few patients that we've even had that information on to be able to make those decisions. Uh, and so I'm hopeful that we'll see more mutation uh, status testing. And as we get more mutation status testing, uh, we'll hopefully uh, have uh, more, even more drugs to be able to act upon that. I mean, with the, the specific data that you mentioned about uh, the EZH2 inhibitor tazimetastat, you know, we know that those patients who are EZH2 mutants uh, have a better response rate to therapy, so about a 69% response rate to therapy as opposed to 35% uh, response rate for those who have EZH2 wild-type disease. But as you mentioned, uh, the progression-free survival appears to be relatively similar uh, uh, for those two uh, agents. And so, you know, from one uh, standpoint, the mutation status uh, helps you with knowing the response rate, uh, but may not uh, change uh, quite so much about how well uh, the, those responses uh, are durable. 
that being said, you know, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the EZH2, the, the rough number that I use is about 20% of patients with follicular lymphoma are EZH2 uh, mutant, uh, so that there will be uh, more responses overall in those 80% of patients who are EZH2 wild type uh, than the 20% uh, who are mutants, even though um, uh, the response rate is much higher than that uh, population. And so I think uh, at this point, uh, the mutation status helps us to some degree, but not, not perfectly. I guess another uh, population uh, to think about, we talked about uh, this uh, patient uh, who had rituximab in the first line setting uh, and then bendamustine rituximab in the second line as somebody who's had long durable responses with relatively slowly progressing disease. Uh, how do you think through the role of lenalidomide and rituximab versus RCHOP uh, in the, the third line setting for a patient with follicular lymphoma? And when do you think about more aggressive therapies for uh, those types of patients? Yeah, I, I generally am of the school of thought that I'm going to use an anthracycline when I'm worried about transformed lymphoma. So oftentimes I'm going to pursue a biopsy just to make sure I know what I'm treating. But what if the, the biopsy is not feasible? Or what if it tells me something I wasn't expecting? And, and when would that be true? Generally, if I have patients that have significant B symptoms, their LDH is quite high, they may even have hypercalcemia. To me, that's transformed disease until proven otherwise. And that may be a scenario where I may favor an anthracycline-based approach. Obviously, if I have a biopsy that has any hints of transformed disease, I'm going to pursue that overall lenalidomide and rituximab option. What if I have a patient who's got cardiomyopathy, though, and, and an anthracycline is not a reasonable option, uh, then I might consider uh, lenalidomide rituximab. I think the other big question to me is when would I consider CAR-T over those options in that third line space? And so I, I, we don't have a wealth of data to help us understand what's the proper sequencing of treatment, but at least in mantle cell lymphoma, what we have learned is for patients who had had bendamustine uh, treatment in their last line of therapy prior to Brexa cell, for instance, if that had occurred within six months of that CAR-T cell therapy, their outcomes were much less favorable. So again, not specific to this situation, but I do think it matters when they've had bendamustine-based approaches and how that impacts my next line of treatment. I think the toxicity profile matters when I have a wealth of options, but I'm also juggling that with efficacy and without a lot of studies that are comparing across these mechanisms of action, uh, I do think we're balancing, again, the, the desire to have improved PFS with the toxicity profile. Podcast number five, we'll spend a lot more time talking about toxicity and talk about the toxicity of the EZH2 inhibitors, uh, the PI3 kinase uh, inhibitors, CAR T-cell uh, therapy, as well as the R-squared uh, regimen, uh, and, and maybe even some of the, the newer emerging uh, therapies. We'll spend most of the time today talking about the efficacy of these agents, and we've talked about chemoimmunotherapy um, and specifically about our chop and talked a, a little bit about the, the uh, regimens that we use. Uh, what about some of the uh, older chemoimmunotherapy regimens that we've used to use? Uh, and are there any of those that you would uh, ever think about for a patient with follicular lymphoma, like fludarabine-based regimens or CVP, uh, which was more commonly used in the frontline setting, or the kinds of regimens that we would use for aggressive lymphomas? Uh, like RICE or RDHAP. When, if ever, do you think about using those kinds of treatments for a patient with follicular lymphoma? 
A really good question. I would say fludarabine has not been used uh, in the last few years in my practice outside of lymphodepletion prior to CAR-T. Not that it's not an effective strategy. It's clearly effective. I think the challenges with fludarabine have been the toxicity, specifically infection, and the prolonged lymphopenia. I think you can make a similar argument with bendamustine. That's probably why some folks are still utilizing things like RCBP uh, with the expectation that you're going to get cytoreduction, but you're not going to have as long of an impact on T cell subset. So that's, I think, perfectly reasonable to consider. I think I've always been slightly disappointed at the efficacy associated with RCVP when we've looked at any sort of comparison to other chemotherapy-based options, but the toxicity profile is reasonable. For the more intensive sort of platinum-based salvage approaches, I've not routinely done that outside of a scenario where, again, I think that there's underlying transform disease uh, in a patient that may have had a prior anthracycline in terms of frontline. I don't have a preference among the available platinum-based options. I think most people use rice more often than others just based off of the toxicity profile and sort of ease of use. Um, least some hint that there might be some distinction in efficacy based off of cell of origin when we look at a subgroup analysis of the coral study. Again, this is large cell specific, but because many of these patients uh, are have a, a germinal center derived uh, lymphoma, maybe that might impact me in, in terms of choosing something that's more cytarabine based platinum approach. But again, not something that I'm, I'm doing on a regular basis. So we've talked through uh, chemoimmunotherapy-based approaches and through the use of EZH2 inhibitors and the third-line therapy. Uh, what about uh, PI3 kinase uh, inhibitors? And uh, so as you know, a few of the agents uh, have been withdrawn uh, from the market uh, now, uh, idelalisib, uh, umbralisib, and duvalisib, uh, but copanlisib remains as a, a therapy that's available to patients. When do you think about a PI3 kinase inhibitor uh, and uh, what are the responses that we see associated with that agent? In my practice, I generally am reserving a PI3 kinase inhibitor after patients have failed chemoimmunotherapy and alenalidomide in combination with CD20 approach. And again, it's mostly just based off of duration of therapy. When we initiate treatment with the PI3 kinase inhibitors, we're generally treating until progression or intolerance. As you've mentioned, several of them have been removed from the market. Some of that is actually due to concerns about toxicity and later randomized studies, but some of it was also just low enthusiasm in terms of completing some of those trials. So I think the community at large um, does not have as much enthusiasm surrounding PI3 kinase inhibitors as other mechanisms of action, whether or not it's the toxicity profile, the lengthy duration of therapy, so it's probably a combination of both of those factors. Where I utilize something like copanlisib is usually in that third line or later space for patients who have not are progressing beyond uh, lenalidomide. And potentially I'm going to use it to sort of bridge them in a sense to their next treatment, which may be CAR-T, and particularly for patients who don't have um, good oral options. I think the challenges with copanlisib we'll talk about is uh, the fact that you, you have to be careful in patients that don't have controlled type 2 diabetes or don't have controlled hypertension, but the intermittent IV dosing does meet an unmet need, particularly for those patients who don't have good oral coverage. I completely agree with you on those points. Uh, you know, as uh, someone who was involved in the trials, 
on the uh, early oral uh, PI3 kinase inhibitors. These are agents that have good response rates in patients with uh, follicular lymphoma, response rates in the 40 to 50% uh, range, uh, and have, in general, a progression-free survival of about a year. Uh, but because of the toxicities and the, the areas that you mentioned, a number of them have been withdrawn from the market. Perhaps uh, copanlisib has ways of being able to address some of those because it's given IV and so because it's given intermittently uh, and, and many of those uh, toxicities, at least with the oral agents, have been more associated with continuous dosing uh, that uh, may help to address some of those. The flip side is that because it's IV, um, it makes it a little bit more challenging for administration to patients who would prefer to have that oral dosing of an agent that they could manage on an outpatient basis, particularly when there are now oral alternatives like the EZH2 inhibitors and lenalidomide uh, in this space. Maybe turning uh, to a, another component at an area where you've been very involved, uh, and that's the development of CAR T-cell uh, therapy for patients with lymphoma. Uh, how do you think about the use of CAR T-cell in follicular lymphoma? Who are the patients that you consider for CAR T-cell therapy, and what do we see in terms of responses there? So my first impression of the data, at least from Zuma 5, which was a single-arm phase 2 study looking at AxiCell, which is a CD19, CD28 autologous CAR, we haven't seen PFS in that third line or later space quite as striking. So the median PFS among the follicular lymphoma patients in that study was 39 months. When we look at the ALARA study, which again is an auto CD19 41BB construct that has differences in the construct, but probably what's most striking about it is the toxicity profile looks to be very favorable. Again, very favorable outcomes. Now, what we can learn from these single arm phase two studies is they were done in young patients that were progressing quite quickly through multiple lines of therapy. So that's exactly who I consider for CAR T. We mentioned the POD24 patients, but those patients that are progressing quickly through multiple lines of effective therapy, this is not, you know, rituximab monotherapy, for instance, but patients who've had chemoimmunotherapy, they've had a second line that's lenalidomide based, and they're still progressing quickly. Those are the patients I'm going to consider CAR T4. The other patients where I think this can be very helpful is for those transformed follicular. We know across the large cell studies that those patients tend to do quite well with CAR T cell therapy. Where I'm struggling a little bit is what about for that 72-year-old patient who's not progressing rapidly through treatment, but also doesn't want to be on therapy for a prolonged period of time? Is the toxicity uh, justifiable? So how would you handle that patient? So I think that's an incredible uh, question. I first agree with you about what you said about the effectiveness of uh, CAR T-cell therapy in these patient populations. So we know from the National Lymphocare Study and other observational studies that we talked about uh, in our first podcast, uh, that if you look at patients as they go through lines of therapy, those responses tend to be quite good for first-line therapy and reasonable for second-line therapy. Uh, but by third or, or later line of therapy, those are generally at one year or less in terms of the progression-free survival. And so to see progression-free survival of uh, more than three years with a therapy, uh, albeit in a, a, a relatively selected patient population, uh, that's uh, really quite impressive. And so I think what needs to hold is uh, how uh, widely these therapies can be used, and in particular for that 72-year-old patient that you mentioned, uh, that, that those are the kinds of patients that we typically see uh, in follicular uh, lymphoma, particularly in those later lines of therapy. 
I think one of the things that uh, my experience with taking care of patients with CAR T-cell uh, therapy and experience with taking care of patients with follicular lymphoma has shown is that you can't use age by itself uh, as a prognostic or predictive factor for the kinds of therapy that a patient can take. Uh, and so those are, for that particular patient, I'd want to know a lot more about comorbidities uh, in terms of uh, what other kinds of toxicities that you might uh, be concerned about uh, with CAR T-cell therapy. I also would want to know about quality of life and goals of therapy. And uh, as you mentioned, if this is the kind of uh, person uh, who really did not enjoy being on prolonged therapy uh, with an oral agent that you take indefinitely or another kinds of therapy that you take for a long period of time and uh, would prefer a, an approach using CAR T-cell uh, that could use intermittent therapy, albeit with prolonged follow-up care, uh, that those approaches uh, are quite are quite viable. You know, I will, will mention therapies that uh, used to be used in follicular lymphoma are no longer used. Uh, the one uh, that links quite closely to this is the use of radioimmunotherapy, uh, where we used to give a single dose of a CD20-directed uh, radioimmunotherapy uh, that produced quite prolonged uh, responses, and patients actually appreciated that uh, as a therapy uh, that uh, could be utilized in the past. And I think CAR T-cells may fill that kind of niche for, for many patients who can tolerate it. Tell me about how you approach age uh, and CAR T-cell therapy, particularly in this follicular lymphoma patient population. Is there an age at which you would consider that CAR T-cell therapy is not a viable option? No, as you mentioned, I think functional status, comorbidities um, far outweigh just age and isolation. Though in my experience, as patients age, they tend to have worsening performance status. They tend to accumulate comorbidities that probably pay, play a larger role than whenever we are dealing with young patients. So what where it does factor into my decisions is if I have two CAR T's that are otherwise considered to be equivalent in terms of efficacy, I'm going to choose the CAR T that's better tolerated for my patients that are older. Uh, so for instance, we we will like, we have the TISA cell option, which again is a form BB construct. We haven't compared them head to head in terms of efficacy, but if the efficacy looks to be comparable, and in my opinion, it probably is, definitely going to choose a better tolerated CAR T um, for those patients that are older or frailer. And so I, I agree with you. We never consider age alone, but there's oftentimes lots of factors associated with that older age. Well, as I mentioned, we'll talk more about uh, toxicity in a later lecture, but maybe in our last few minutes, we'll go uh, rapid fire through a few cases uh, of uh, patients with follicular lymphoma in certain scenarios and uh, get your take on how you would think about approaching uh, those patients. So the first is a patient with follicular lymphoma who has evidence of transformation and got treated with RCHOP uh, therapy for that transformation uh, and then uh, had maintenance therapy with rituximab following that. Uh, and then five years after that is now relapsed with follicular lymphoma, got single agent rituximab uh, and had another uh, uh, about uh, 14 month remission and now has relapsed again. What kinds of treatments do you think about in that scenario? You get all the options we talked about today. So you still haven't exposed this patient to bendamustine. You've got lenalidomide in combination with rituximab. You've got the PI3 kinase inhibitors. You've got CAR T cell therapy. You've got EZH2. Again, depending on performance status, uh, comorbidities, whether or not the patient has any cytopenias, uh, I probably will lean towards bendamustine in combination with rituximab versus lenalidomide rituximab and just walk through the differences in terms of the safety profile, the schedule, and, and make a treatment decision. 
The second one is perhaps uh, a newer scenario. So someone who had lenalidomide and rituximab as their upfront uh, regimen, uh, had that therapy and stopped after about 18 months uh, of therapy uh, uh, because of progression of disease and then went on uh, to have bendamustine rituximab uh, as the second line uh, therapy at that progression. Uh, what do you think about in third line therapy for that patient? This is someone who's had good therapy. And again, depending on how long the remission periods have been, I might actually consider uh, CAR T-cell therapy for that next line of therapy. If it's an older, frailer person uh, or the toxicity profile is just not very attractive, uh, then in that setting, I might pursue copanlicid first with the expectation that my next line of treatment uh, may be either a bispecific or CAR-T. Well, it's been a really great uh, discussion. I might uh, uh, throw in the EZH2 inhibitor uh, to that uh, last uh, as a last option for that uh, particular patient. Uh, but I think uh, any of the, the other options that you mentioned uh, are also uh, viable ones uh, and, and uh, always clinical trials for a patient who's had, you know, aggressive uh, behaving disease of that, that kind. So uh, stay tuned for our next uh, podcast where we'll talk more about uh, follicular lymphoma. This has been a fantastic uh, discussion and looking forward to talking to you in our next session. Thank you. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash FL3. Look for all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today.